When I got to step three this time, this decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God had meaning. And it didn't just mean that I didn't want my life to stink anymore. It meant that I was willing to do whatever was next in this process. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, that was Mr. David G's voice that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Cassandra. Cassandra went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab, and made a contribution. Thank you so much, Cassandra, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. So, uh, David G. is the first person I thought of with the topic today. And the topic of uh, this episode is Steps 1, 2, and 3, which I wanted to get recorded for the beginning of 2019. Uh, and by the way, just in case you did not catch it, uh, this is also the first year or one year anniversary of Sober Speak, thanks to you guys. And uh, in the previous episode, I uh, uh, talk about that at length. But uh, one more time, I just wanted to say thank you to you guys out there for uh, uh, supporting this throughout the years, uh, for throughout the year, not years. Um, I couldn't do this without you. I wouldn't do this without you. If I was just sitting here talking to this mic by myself and nobody was listening to these things, well, it wouldn't be worth it. But uh, anyway, so David is going to address several different subjects during today's episode. He's going to address powerlessness, the phenomenon of craving, which is talked about in uh, the doctor's opinion. He's going to address the term that you hear in the second step, restored to sanity, and exactly what that means. He's going to talk about relapse and prejudice and hypocrisy. Uh, we pretty much cover the gamut, and uh, David does it in a, uh, in a fashion in which I know that you're going to enjoy. Okay, so today we are sitting here with Mr. David G. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you can find David on a, a couple of other episodes, but a couple of other episodes. But why don't you say hello, David? Hey, good afternoon. 
All right, so David G. is a, a good friend of mine. We both live here in the Dallas, Texas, uh, actually Frisco, Texas area. And uh, the reason I wanted to have David in today is because I wanted to I wanted him to go over these steps. As as uh, regular listeners will know, we generally will cover a story, so to speak, of an individual. Uh, David's been on twice, as I mentioned a couple times, and we covered his story, if you will, in those other episodes. So this time, I wanted to be a little bit more uh, myopic. I wanted to focus a little on steps one, two, and three as we are beginning the new year in January of 2019. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. So David is uh, graciously agreed to come and sit at the Sober Speak mic today. And so we're going to, like I said, cover steps one, two, and three. And so uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with the steps, uh, we'll we'll talk about step one to begin with, and we'll talk about what the others are um, as we roll down this road here with David. So step one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So David, I know you have experience with the steps. So why don't you go ahead and give me your first thoughts, and then I'll just kind of follow up with some questions after that. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind would be thinking about the word powerless and really having a recognition, like an internal recognition of what that meant to me. Um, You know, for many years, my drinking showed me that I had a drinking problem. Uh, Drinking caused me problems. Uh, It's kind of a saying in AA, I wasn't uh, drinking every time I got in trouble, but every time I got in trouble, I seemed to be drunk. And uh, so that wasn't lost on me from my teenage years uh, up until the time in my late teenage years when I first arrived on the doorsteps of the program because I'd gotten in trouble, uh, not surprisingly, because of drugs and alcohol. And um, where that went to between 1987 and 1993, in other words, my understanding of personal powerlessness uh, morphed and grew and changed. And uh, the recognition that this was not a problem of me being irresponsible, me being too big of a party or another people not wanting me to have the fun I wanted to have, you know, be it my parents, the teachers or the police uh, interfering with the good times I was having to really at 26 years old, knowing that I was dying of alcoholism, that I was dying of powerlessness and that 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 death was imminent and uh, many areas of my life had already died. Uh, You know, your heart can be beating and your life can be dying. And that was certainly the case with me. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is the opportunities I had in life. You know, my parents had sacrificed since I was a little boy uh, to put me in the best schools because there was busing in Dallas and they sacrificed because we were not wealthy people and they sent me to the best private schools that they could afford and were totally willing to pay for me to go to college and to go to graduate school and to have a professional degree. And, And my powerlessness made it impossible for that to happen. I didn't connect those things. Um, I just thought I had changed my mind or those things didn't matter to me or, you know, school sucks or whatever you want to say. Uh, But the truth of the matter was 
uh, my addiction, my alcoholism was taking me to a place where I was no longer capable. And those opportunities left, those opportunities died. And they have never come back to life. They truly did die. I mean, I guess I could go back to uh, high school and try and get a decent GPA and then go to college and try to get a decent GPA and go to graduate school. But at 51 years old, it's doubtful that that's possible. And so other things, relationships, you know, sweet relationships dying, you know, the pain of those relationships is what I related to my alcohol problem, but I didn't relate the pain of those relationships to my powerlessness. You know, my powerlessness made it so that no matter what the consequences were in my life, that I, and no matter how much I promised myself that I wasn't going to repeat the behaviors that caused those consequences, my powerlessness dictated that I would repeat those behaviors because I didn't have a choice. And I didn't know that, you know, powerlessness is about not having a choice. And for many years uh, in the rooms of 12-step fellowships and outside the rooms of 12-step fellowships, I really had a, a, a thinking or feeling or a combination of the two inside that it was only a matter of me pulling myself together, of straightening up, that things were going to be fine. And that proved not to be the case. Um, I went through a, a real bloodletting. If I could have come into uh, sobriety with the consequences that brought me in when I was 19 years old instead of the consequences I brought in at 26 years old, what a what a series of uh, things I wouldn't have to regret and have to make up for and and uh, you know pray away and and rely on God to help me not only forgive other people but forgive myself for the horrible mistakes I made. But that is the nature of powerlessness. It doesn't work in the terms of sensibility. I don't get to talk myself out of being powerless. Um, I don't get to talk myself out of alcoholism. And so when you talk about step one, that, that complete change in view of thinking I was a guy who just partied too hard to I was a guy who was literally dying of alcoholism was the change that occurred in me between my first meeting and my last desire chip. Um, and you know, when you think in terms of like life becoming unmanageable, um, I remember I was sitting on the couch in my living room on September 15th of 1993. Uh, my wife was gone. My family had abandoned me. Uh, I was in an empty apartment alone. And as I sat there contemplating suicide, contemplating giving up to some degree that I'd never given up before, the thought shot through my mind that this is what it means to be powerless over alcohol and for your life to be unmanageable. And at that moment, something changed in me. You know, that complete recognition, that complete admission of what powerlessness meant and looked like in my life, when it really overcame me and became the central fact of my life, which sounds like a horrible thing to happen to someone, it actually turned out to be the best thing that's ever happened to me. And it began my journey of the working the 12 steps and being a recovered individual. And now, you know, 25 years later, uh, there's a lot of evidence in my life that, 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 that day, that moment, that decision that I made to acknowledge my personal powerlessness to its fullest implications was a life-changing event, not just another opportunity to look at myself as a bad guy, but an opportunity to start over as a new guy. So that was your admission. Uh, you know, it says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, and you have a 
I guess, a succinct memory of a time and place where that actually happened for you. Yes. All right, so let's go on to uh, step two. So uh, step two is, uh, for those of you reading along at home, if you will, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So when you think about that, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. What are some of your first thoughts that come up as a result of that? I would, I, I'd have to say that the thing that is, was the biggest obstacle to me all came from all of these prejudices. Prejudices, you know, being um, not necessarily like a racial prejudice or that type of prejudice, but just preconceived notions of what I believed I knew, you know, kind of the foundational things inside of me that reacted to even the idea of God. Okay, so I always think this is an important part uh, in that. Can you describe for the listeners if you what your what your background was like in terms of a, a spiritual or religious sort of upbringing? Yeah, so I was raised in a home. My mother was a diaconal minister in the Methodist church. My stepfather, later in my high school years, was a Methodist minister. And I was raised in the Methodist church, which was really a very kind church. They treated me very well. I mean, there was a few instances where I was treated the way I deserved to be treated because of the way I was behaving. But for the most part, these were people who looked out for me and cared for me. And even in the depths of my addiction, when I came back, they welcomed me back with open arms. So I did not have a jaded view of religious people. I did see a lot of hypocrisy in people's behavior, you know, um, the way... Uh, uh, they seem to behave in public versus the way I knew they behaved in private. But again, I was that same person, and I was, I'm was i not a person who's not self-aware. I was self-aware during my addiction, much less prior to my addiction. And I didn't see myself as some perfect person who didn't have any hypocrisy. Um, so when it comes to what I believed about God, it wasn't necessarily a religious or not religious view of God. I didn't really have a problem with God. It just never struck me as a solution to a problem that I might have. Hmm. Um, not to say that there weren't times when I was in trouble that I didn't pray to God, you know, please don't let this be true. Please don't let that test come back positive. Please don't let them find out that I did that. You know, there were certainly the foxhole variety prayers, but those those were not uh, part of any type of belief system. You know, I, my belief system was just very narcissistic and hedonistic, and and you just want to have as much fun as you can get away with, and. Um, and the only time you really do anything wrong is when you get caught. <laughs> and so that was sort of a belief system that I came into the program with. And um, so when we talk about, you know, having the spiritual experience or we talk about, you know, coming to believe, my coming to believe was that I had been around religion, that it had kind of struck me as not being particularly helpful that there wasn't anything wrong with it, but it really wasn't for me. I was kind of this lukewarm person. Um, I I could be offended by people who were overly zealous about their religion. If someone really came at me with their religion, you know, and and that type of thing, that I, I could bristle like Bill did in the in his story, bristle with antagonism. I just would want to get away from conversations like that. But nothing about you know the word God or religion itself made me want to run away from AA. 
it was that that what had to occur for me, and it happened. It's it's interesting. A lot of my coming to believe happened during my using while I was an active member in AA. Very oh, very interesting. It, because as I would hear and see people getting better and getting year chips and two year chips and and their the light coming on not only in their eyes but in their life seeing their lives recreated right in front of me as I'm picking up desire chip number 15, I started to recognize that things were happening for people who stuck struck their claim to God that were not happening for me. And, um, and so when I did have that step one experience, I was eager and hungry for that to possibly happen for me. Because that part of that step one experience was that I had been an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous for several years and had never really done the things that people talked about in meetings, like have a sponsor, do instructions, work the steps. I talked about the steps and I could talk about anything. We could talk about astrophysics or something else I know nothing about. And I could have some plausible ability to talk about it. But the truth was there was no truth behind what I had to say. And once I came into the program in 1993 with a real recognition, A, that I was dying, and B, that I had never really worked the 12 steps, my hunger to work those steps and learn about them and try to apply them in my life was a big part of that coming to believe process where I looked back one day and I realized that I was comforted by God or higher power. I'm not someone who defines anything in particular that changes, but I do have a comfort from those, those experiences that I did not feel like I had before. So, and that kind of dovetails into another, I guess, topic slash question. Uh, let me throw this comment out there is that, uh, as you know, a lot of people come into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and they have some sort you bring up the word God, you bring up higher power, you talk about having a higher power restore you to sanity. Uh, they bristle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any of that bristling when you came in? It doesn't sound that way. If I had any bristling, it was towards happy people. (laughs) Happy people just bugged me. And most of the happy people in Alcoholics Anonymous and the other 12-step fellowships I go to talk a lot about their relationship with God. And so it kind of went hand in hand with that. You know, one of the things that went on with me, really, I was very active in the program from 91 through 93, so about two and a half solid years of 90 and 90, but relapsing all the time. And one of the things that occurred during that time is the very people who I should have been looking toward to help me were the very people that I felt like I didn't want to be around because they seemed, they were just too much for me. You know, we called them big book thumpers and AA Nazis and that type of thing. And we almost made fun of people that were happy. And I think it's because I didn't have, I didn't have any roadmap to sustain happiness. I mean, my life was always this roller coaster of highs and lows. And, and I always felt to some degree, like the people who were really happy in the program looked down at me with their happiness. Mm. I didn't feel them wanting to pull me up. 
I felt them kind of lording their happiness over me. Like even them saying their sobriety dates, I thought was show offy. Like I felt like you know what would go through my mind when someone would say a, a long a, a you know a long sobriety date and maybe add I'm a grateful this and that is my the thought literally that would go through my mind was good for you, and that was really what stood behind me my and between me and finding this was that I kept going to the people who also thought that AA was kind of stupid. Who made fun of the people and picked apart the people because, oh, he, he's been sober 20 years, but he got divorced. He got audited by the IRS. He got fired from his job for stealing. You know, it was like that line in the big book where it says he missed the beauty of the forest because of the ugliness of some of its trees. I was so good at picking people apart and making their value less so that I could feel more that it never occurred to me to go to those people who felt value in their lives and ask them how they got that value. Would you please show me how? Because I need it. Right. So let's talk about a little bit about the sanity that it talks about in the second step. You know, you hear a lot of people in the program, you know, they say, well, I was offended, you know, that somebody said I was insane. And so let me repeat the step again. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Tell me what you think that means within the context of the book and the program. Well, obviously, any all of the steps have to grow in our sobriety. The, the, the application of the steps in my life today, though it is the same steps and the same principles, is not the same application that it was 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I could not get a crack pipe out of my mouth. I could not stop drinking. I could not stop using. And so the insanity of the first drink really had to be taken care of before we could talk about any other type of insanity. And, you know, from 87 to 93, it what I was doing in the program, going to meetings all the time, dating sober girls, going bowling, going to AA conferences and, and that type of thing wasn't removing that insanity. It wasn't solving that insanity. I might go two months, three months, six months, but I would always change my mind, the mental obsession, <laughs> and I would use again. And so the when I come in, the insanity that I have to focus on is the insanity of the first drink. Now, Years later, if all we were doing was talking about the insanity of the first drink, why would we go to meetings anymore? I haven't had the insanity of the first drink in half of my life. Um, and so the insanity has morphed into this unmanageability that occurs between my ears. And it's not necessarily hearing voices insanity, but you know what? Sometimes it is hearing voices insanity. Sometimes there's voices in my head that are argumentative, that want to <laughs> set me uh, apart from the people around me that I love. We call those resentments. We call those fears. We call them whatever you want. But if they lead me into acting out, if I set up a system in my mind where I have an excuse to do whatever I want, regardless of my principles or morals or beliefs which I have, done in so, I have done in sobriety, that is insanity. And so this application of these principles in my life, sadly, in some cases, 
I have to have a step one experience with some of those things for me to truly recognize my personal powerlessness so that I can take the path of recovering from this hopeless state of mind and body that isn't just about alcohol. It can be about a lot of other things. You know, you talk to people who have been sober a long time and very few of them will tell you that they haven't had any other issues in their life. <laughs> I would mm-hmm. say none of them. Right. Well, <laughs> very there's few a couple, but I'm, generous, not, right? I'm not sure they're aware of right. themselves. <laughs> So I want to back up here a little bit. Uh, it, it really, it's, it's kind of more around step one. But, uh, you know, I, I love the, the doctor's opinion. And I've heard you talk about the doctor's opinion before and the phenomenon of craving and, and everything that the good doctor said. And just in case you don't know what we're talking about, uh, there's a chapter in the book. Uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, called The Doctor's Opinion. So why don't you talk a little bit about your impressions with the doctor's opinion, what he said. You can even provide a little history lesson if you want to, whatever you know about it, and we'll go from there. So he talks probably the the most impactful thing for me. And by the way, just so people know, this is Dr. Silkworth. Yeah, Dr. Silkworth. And uh, who did all kinds of crazy stuff to try to cure alcoholics? That's right. Well, explain to his him about his relationship with Bill W. Bill was one of his regular patients. They did all kinds of things. They did um, something where they literally poisoned him with evening shade. I think it's called. I can't remember. It's evading my mind right now what it was called. But Bill went through this thing where they literally poisoned him and made him violently ill for two or three days so that it would wash all of the alcohol out of his system. And of course, he was drunk the day after he got out of the hospital. (laughs) But I mean, they tried all sorts of different things. And so they didn't really ask the doctor, in the doctor's opinion, how do you get sober? They asked him what his observations were of these people who did get sober. And so when you talk about the doctor's opinion, I think the most important thing... And he ran and just, he ran a hospital. Towns Hospital. Right, Towns Hospital, which he had worked with not only Tens Bill, of thousands. Right. Tens he said he thousands. used to have nightmares about the right. people. And, and that we were heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, and, and he talks about the allergy. And, and that's a word that I think I had a lot of prejudice against, you know. I didn't see how what I had was even a disease. You know, I like to party. I mean, I was around people who partied. The people who were around me partied exactly the way I partied, or I didn't party with them. I found people who would. So in his writings, one of the things he says, their alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one. The way I did things, the way I used drugs, the way I drank amongst my circle of friends was pretty normal. You know, I'm, I'm kind of amazed sometimes when I'm at meetings and there's newcomers there, and they talk about hanging around normal people and drinking the way we drank. I just don't see why you would even do that. <laughs> I would find people like me, which are plentiful, That's great. and party with them, the people who don't stop until they pass out, get locked up, or run out of money. I mean, that's just the way I did it. But he talked about that being an abnormal reaction. And, you know, a lot of the things about an abnormal reaction, you know, fine, people who eat strawberries who are allergic to strawberries break out in hives on their face, I think. Peanuts, you go into anaphylactic shock. With me, I crave more. It's, it's this one is too many and a thousand is never enough. I have so many times in my relapse days told myself that I was just going to drink one beer, that I was just going to smoke one hit off that joint at the Pink Floyd concert, or the craziest one of all is I was just going to go down to the crack house and buy a 20. And I totally believe that in my mind. And the thing is, is that the abnormal reaction was 
I don't know many normal people who go smoke crack, but there are plenty of normal people who do go to a Pink Floyd concert, do take one hit off a joint, and enjoy the show and go home and go to bed and wake up the next day and go to work. Or drink a couple beers at, at, at a bar and play darts and get up the next morning and go to bed. With me... What he's talking about is there's absolutely no way for me to forecast what's going to happen. What's going to happen is as big a mystery to me as everyone else in the room. And no matter how scary it gets, no matter how much information I have, I cannot overcome this allergy, this obsession. I am going to have the abnormal reaction every time. So when he talks about that, he uses a line in his writing. He says, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Mm -hmm. And that was the story of my life. The problems piled up on the problems, piled up on the problems, piled up on the problems. And no matter how hard I tried and no matter how hard I looked at those problems, I could not keep myself from taking that first drink. I always believed the lie. So the insanity isn't just the reaction. The insanity that he's talking about is also no matter what happens, I'm unable not to do it again. And then he goes on, and after he discusses, you know, that we drink because we like the effect, of course, that's why people drink. Uh, Otherwise, they just drink Sprite, right? Sprite really does taste better than beer. Um, (laughs) Otherwise, they just drink Sprite, but they they drink because because of the way it affects them, and then their problems pile up on them, and then you have to drink more to forget about the new problems and drink more to forget about the new problems. And that was me. I mean, I was just swirling down the toilet of these consequences. And what, and this is, again, this is a doctor's observations of us. But then he has the observation of someone like me, someone like you, who have had the spiritual awakening and that same person, and I'm just quoting it, who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, easily finds himself able to control his desire for alcohol as long as he follows a few simple rules. Now, my sponsor told me the few simple rules. I don't know that everyone does that. Now, John's my sponsor now, but he wasn't my sponsor when I got sober. My sponsor had me write him down. You hear it shared about in meetings all the time, the five things that people do every day in sobriety. You wake up in the morning, ask God to keep you sober, read AA or recovery literature, talk to another alcoholic, go to a meeting and thank God before you go to bed for your sobriety. And I have done those things every day for 25 years. And not surprisingly, I am easily able to control my desire for alcohol. And I don't deviate from that. And I, I believe, you talk about the step two experience coming to believe, I believe that it is my willingness to do those things that has created this neutral state that I'm in over alcohol. You know, pat someone on the back who's been sober as long as you and I have been sober, and it's almost a silly thing because it's really not hard to stay sober when you don't feel like staying sober, when you don't feel like drinking. I'm not fighting anything. I don't have willpower. I don't have self-control. What I have is this position of neutrality. Yeah, if I were fighting it, uh, it would be a losing battle. Horrible. I wouldn't want to. I used to think, so when I first came into AA and I was in it for you know a long time without staying sober, I never read this book, but there's some book I can't even tell you who it's by, and there's the only thing I remember from it is this one quote, men live lives of quiet desperation. You know who wrote that? I don't. No idea. I've heard I was it, probably supposed to read it in college <laughs> and read the cliff notes. But anyway, that is what I thought. Is that of mice and men? I have no idea. I have to look that up. I need to Google it. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, I, used to, I, I used to think that that's what sobriety was. 
that we just grabbed onto the chair and held on and just suffered through life like it was some long detention that we all were being punished <laughs> and we had used up our rights to have a life and have fun that we were just going to have to bite our tongue you know and not drink and that has been absolute the opposite. You know, I think that was part of my insanity. Part of my insanity wasn't just my prejudice about my belief in God. It was my prejudice about what sobriety was like. Like, I actually thought I knew what it would be like to be a recovered alcoholic, even when I wasn't a recovered alcoholic, nor doing any of the things that recovered alcoholics do, which I, I hate to steal your thunder. That goes right into step three. Before we go into step yeah. three... Let me just do a little announcement here. We will be continuing our conversation with Mr. David G. in a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you will find all of our previous episodes and you can listen to them for free. You can also find the donate button on our website if you choose to use it and only if the spirit moves you. Please keep in mind this podcast is funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. David G., we're going to dovetail right into step three. So step three, uh, just in case you're not a big book thumper and you don't know this off the top of your head, is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So what were you going to say about step three? So wanting something is not doing what it takes to have that thing. I am a person who, when I look back on my life, a, a person full of wants, but not, not a person who was filled with the action to achieve those wants. And so when I think about step two and recognizing that possibly God can restore me to sanity if I'm willing to do things, how many times have I stood at a point in my life where I needed things to be different, where I wanted things to be different? I mean, who wants to lose their family? Who wants to be unemployed and unemployable? Who wants to be incarcerated? Who wants their liver to fail? Who wants any of these issues that are just common amongst us? Nobody wants that. For me, it actually seemed like an epiphany to me to say, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to be kicked out of my home. I don't want to drink anymore. I don't want these consequences. When, of course, I don't want those things. Who would want those things? Who get my point? Right. And so I really went through that for a long time. I actually did come to the point of what I didn't know what step three was really, but many times in my life, I had gotten my butt kicked by life, either through romantic relationships gone south, consequences directly due to my drinking and drugging or to my driving. I was a horrible driver. I got my license suspended from getting three tickets the day I got my license. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of things that I have screwed up in my life. And in the midst of those consequences, many times I have made a decision that I wanted things to be different. The follow through is where I always failed. Now, I don't know if the follow through this time 
was changed because of that step one experience I described to you. I don't know if it was changed because of watching the people around me in the program whose lives had changed so dramatically while mine just kept getting worse and worse or any number of things that I could list off. Or maybe it's just a little combination of all those things. You know, maybe it was little epiphanies in a lot of different areas of my life that opened my eyes. But the point of the matter was, when I got to step three this time, this decision to turn my will in my life over to the care of God had meaning. And it didn't just mean that I didn't want my life to stink anymore. It meant that I was willing to do whatever was next in this process. And so in its simplest form, step three isn't really a long drawn out thing. In its simplest form, step three is this recognition of this kind of, I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. And the way he's, I'm going to let him is to follow the rest of the instructions. You know, I really knew that I was doing step three when I started writing my step four. It is way more complicated than that because so many times in my life, in my sobriety, in my pre-sobriety, my many years of relapse, I've seen where I've come to that point where I've made a decision to be different. I've called my sponsor. I've called this sponsor, John, in sobriety and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And then when he told me the things that he had to say about what I didn't want to do anymore... I had an answer for him. I had an excuse, uh, a reason, a rationalization for why I wasn't ready to quite quite take it that far. In other words, I wanted improvement, but I didn't want change. And that is like a death sentence to things in my life. And it it was almost a death sentence to my life in trying to get sober, wanting so desperately to not have the consequences in my life that were in front of me and all around me, but not having those consequences be enough of a motivation to move forward and do things that I really didn't think were the right things for me to do. And so drunk or sober, when we're ta- whether we're talking about uh, relationships or uh, uh, money stuff or alcoholism, uh, no matter what we're talking about, the real issue of step three is not if I'm able to arrive there, but if I'm able to move from there into the solution. And I have proven myself unable to do that in various ways during my sobriety and certainly during the six years that I was a chronic relapser. So let's talk about step three. And, uh, I, you know, I know that you have sponsored tons of guys throughout your uh, time in sobriety. When you're talking to a sponsee, so to speak, and you're ready to do the third step, um, I, I know you've already gave some background on that, but is there anything that you want to add that you explain? And actually, how do you do that third step with a sponsee, uh, like in other words, what is, I mean, how does step three manifest itself when you start working with a sponsee? All right. So the way I was shown to work the steps, and I know that different people do things differently as as long as it's guided by the big book. Um, I think that it's the right way to do it. There's no right way or wrong way. There's ways that are guided by the big book. And so when my sponsor took me through the big book at various places, uh, he asked me to talk about in writing my uh, beliefs and unbeliefs about my higher power, 
Um, in chapter four, we agnostics, there's a tremendous amount. Uh, one of the greatest lines is, do not let any prejudice you have against spiritual terms keep you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. And I'd never done that. Like, for example, in the big book and step three, after it's done, it says something like, well, it says exactly, we were reborn. Correct. And that is a terminology that there is prejudice against right. in this society. And for, What does and, reborn mean to you? Right. Hey, how about, here's a spiritual term. What does God mean to you? <laughs> That's a good spiritual term to ask yourself. And I had never really honestly asked myself. I could look at the vision I have of the roof of the Sistine Chapel with the bearded God touching Adam and giving him life and thinking that that's crazy. I mean, that looks like Greek mythology to me. I mean, that's really how I reacted to that. But I never really said to myself, okay, if it's not the guy on the Sistine Chapel, if it's not uh, whatever, what is it? And I had not done that. And my sponsor pressed me to do that. He asked me to write about what do you believe in God? What is it that we're talking about? You can call it God. You can call it higher power. You can call it anything you want. But what is it that you're talking about? Because I had named God, but I had never defined God of my understanding. Yeah, because you, you know, you talk to people sometimes and I've seen this, you know, they take polls and they say, you know, do you believe in God? And, you know, a vast majority of people will say they believe in God. Uh, but then you kind of get down to the brass tacks and say, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, I was born into a, a right. Baptist home or I was born into about a their Jewish education. home or, you know, wherever they right. came from and what they were born into. But it's not really so much about what they really believe. Right. And so... That's the practicality of it. Yeah. Uh, you said your sponsor was talking to you about is, you know, what do you believe? So so do you have the guys write it actually I have down? to write it out, and then I really press them about it. Where you does know? that come from? Pressing them? Yeah. Well, My no, no, personality. No, 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 I mean, no, 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 where I mean, does it come from? That's, yes. I mean, you say to them, right. where does that come from? Right. What do you mean by that? Right. You know? One of the things that, you know, and I've gotten to different places with different people because everyone gets to a different place. One of my favorite sponsees who's sober today, you know, and this has been a long time ago. He lives up in Connecticut now. And, and um, you know, one of the things he drew from our conversation was that the God of my understanding is the, has the characteristics that I want to have myself in the relationships that I'm in. I want to be loving and forgiving and caring and, and, uh, and be there for other people in ways that they don't expect and offer for grace, you know, and, and when he started to say that, you know, I was probably 10 years sober at the time, and he's talking about that, and it really wasn't my idea. He, he, I think still to this day, to some degree, thinks that that was my idea that I was trying to pass on to him, but it wasn't. It was his idea that he passed on to me. Mm. And so the back and forth of these discussions where you're really talking about what God means, what is the definition, what is the feeling, what is the power that we're talking about? that those can go anywhere that the other person wants them to go. You know, I try very hard because I don't believe that I'm right. You wouldn't know that by my personality, <laughs> but I really kind of live with the principle that the way I learn from other people is to, to not think that I'm right, you know, and allow things to go where they want. And I've probably had more growth in my coming to believe and my turning my will in, over to the power of God by working with sponsees and having these discussions. Because I'll tell you, for some people, God is a very touchy subject. And I've been in arguments with people, you know, not arguments from my side, but arguments from theirs, because they had such sensitivity to even really discussing some 
in my experience, some people don't even think they have a right to have an opinion about what God is Mm -hmm. because their upbringing and their organized religion dictated to them what they were to believe. I heard somebody in our uh, meeting the other day, in fact, I don't think she'd mind me mentioning her name. Her name was Sharice, and she came from a particular background, a particular religion. And she said that she started to question it one day, and uh, the response was, we're right, just trust us, right. and just kind of move on. Right. And, uh, and who knows what that does when you're five years old? Mm-hmm. It sticks with you. And so, you know, you talk about what, how did I get to that place? The discussions really that, that are pre-step three, which is a moment where we hold hands. It's a very, it's written in the book. We get, it doesn't say get on your knees and hold hands, but I always get on my knees and hold hands. And we read the third step prayer together. Which is page 63 of the big book for those wondering at home. That's where this prayer is. Yep. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Okay. So let's take those one at a time. So God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. What does that mean to you? Well, first of all, I have to define the God that I'm praying to. You know, if, 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 if God, I offer myself to thee, if God and thee are undefined for me, and they don't have to be so defined that they're a uh, uh, religiosity type of thing, just defined in the sense of what does this mean to me? You know, if I am trying to believe in something that I can be comfortable with and that I can believe in, like qualities that are common to most people, you know, God is loving, God is caring, God is forgiving, then what I'm really saying is forgiving, loving, tolerant, caring God who gives me grace, I offer myself to thee. So the second line says, relieve me of the bondage of self, yep. that I may better do thy will. Now, the we vicissitudes could unpack of life. The vicissitudes of life. Okay, so... I love that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, uh, my, my, the two people that were most dear to me in my life, uh, one of them has passed now, and one of them, uh, she's hanging in there. She's like a 95 now, but uh, Mr. and Mrs. Duncan, they used to say the vicissitudes of life yep. all the time. Yeah, that's a big Chuck C one, too. Oh, really? Oh, yep. I didn't know that. I, and they weren't alcoholic. They just yep. they picked up on that. So it says, relieve me of the bondage of self that, that I, I may better, better do, do thy, thy will. will. You know, the book talks about that in a lot of different ways, and not just to say the book, but it talks about blotted out by worldly clamors. You know, life is difficult. Things are hard. You know, finances are hard. Romance can be hard. Family of origin can be hard. Driving in traffic can be a challenge emotionally and spiritually. There's a lot of things that can cut me off from what I'm offering myself at that moment of prayer. You know, really every day and every moment I am confronted with, am I going to offer myself to this God that I've professed to want to believe in, or am I going to worship my fears? Am I going to worship my resentments? And and it's a choice that all of us have, and I think for me, and I don't know how many people I speak for, that really... The reason for all of these meetings, the reason for all of this discussion and prayer and meditation and making AA the center of my life is so that when I am confronted by the vicissitudes of life, the difficulties, the worldly clamors, that I have at least the opportunity to turn myself towards that God that I claim. And sometimes I do it. Often I do it. Often I am able to meet calamity with serenity. Uh, And other times... I am going to have to make some amends because I fail. You and me, brother. And then the last line says, uh, take away my difficulties, the victory over them, 
may bear witness of those I would help of thy power and thy love and thy way of life. So what's your, I guess, interpretation of that particular line? Well, I sure needed to see other people's lives look better than mine. Because <laughs> if I, your lives were the crap show that mine was when I was getting sober, <laughs> why on earth would I go to you for help? And I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know if God removed these difficulties or he showed me a path where those difficulties wouldn't be a part of my life anymore. You know, when you when you show up, when you say you're going to show up, when the words that come out of your mouth match the reality around you, when you become a person of integrity and have a track record of integrity, life gets better. Now, clearly, without a relationship with God, I was unable to sustain that. And in sobriety, there have been periods of time that I've been unable to sustain that, that I have worshipped the worldly clamors instead of worshipping and believing in the God that I turned myself over to in step three. But my life has become attractive to the newcomer. You know, I may not be where I want to be, but I'm a hell of a lot further away from where I used to be. Right. I've heard it put this way before, is that we've all been given the directive to uh, jump to the moon. Some of us make it six inches and some of us make it six feet, but... We're moving in that direction. We're going in that direction, that's for sure. And I want to add one thing that has been on my mind for like two years. I don't know why it came into my head, but it really goes through and it's about this subject, this choice, this third step choice. And that is to whether I'm going to run away with my fears or I'm going to run into the arms of God. And it's that old nursery rhyme. And it ends, and the dish ran away with the spoon. And I really have that. I don't know if it's a new type of psychosis that I have. But when I start to feel myself threatened with these worldly clamors and vicissitudes and these things that will knock me off balance, I think to myself, David, don't let the dish run away with the spoon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's a good place to wrap it up. I'm going to read uh, from uh, page uh, 164, 160, yeah, 164, excuse me, of the big book. Uh, it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your fault to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely Meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Mr. David G., thank you so much once again for stopping by the Sober Speak Studios to to, uh, to, to spend some time with us and the listeners out there. Thanks, John. I'll see you all at a meeting. Godspeed. I <laughs> just want to give you a little bit of a listener feedback. Um, Chad M. writes in, and uh, he says... Email was entitled a podcast recorded on 72818 with Doug S. And you can go back and see that podcast from July 28th, 2018 with Doug S. Uh, and Chad is uh, addressing that. And he said, this podcast caused my jaw to drop. It really hit home with me and what I'm currently going through. The way Doug described his mother sounds like what my wife and I were going through during a divorce. Self-centered and very mean to her husband and others. He's describing his wife there. For a few years, I scratched my head questioning if she was ill or evil. I also had a big fear of having kids and not seeing things for what, for what 
they actually are and hating me later in life for the relationship I had with their mother and leaving. The way Doug explained the relationship he had with his father when he was older put some ease on my thinking. He talked about being born early into, uh, he, excuse me, he talked about being born early to either drink or get away from his mom. My son is always trying to get away from his mom, who's always on his ass, as well as sad to say. It shows me that he sees something as odd with her as well. I have been praying hard about my divorced kids and soon-to-be ex-wife, along with my new sobriety. In listening to this particular podcast, the one with Doug S., it was like God spoke to me. It calmed me down, and I was able to relax. I listened to it again to try to figure out exactly what it was, but I can't put my finger on it. Maybe it was that I'm not alone with dealing with a wife slash mom that is in this way. And maybe it was the part that Doug is the part where Doug still had a relationship with his father later in life and picked on after his mother's illness. Either way, it changed my mood and feeling for the better. I've been sober for four days now and counting. I got myself a sponsor last night and began working with him right away. One day, I would like to share my story with you, John M. Thank you for for everything that you do. It has really helped me in the past three days being away from AA. And I know this from another from an Instagram message that he sent me that he is a, a, a truck driver. I'm excited for my new life, Chad M. Well, you know, Chad. You're four days sober. Your perception will change. Um, Your attitudes will change. Um, You will become a new person if you just keep keeping on, keeping on with this. I thank you so much for writing in. Uh, Malka writes in, hope I'm pronouncing that right, M-A-L-K-A, says, Hi, John. Thank you so much for, for your service making this podcast. I learned at least one new thing from each of your episodes. I especially wanted to thank you for your interview with John M. Not me, John M., but the John M. that I interviewed. That's me talking right now. John M., comma, the man who identified as an alcoholic and sexaholic. I am the wife of a sober member of SA and a member of another 12-step program and told me that my husband's addiction was the, quote, Worst one. Unfortunately, even within the 12 step community, there remains an added level of shame when the drug of choice relates to sex. Your listeners might benefit from knowing that there is another 12 step program called S Anon. S is in sex anon, I'm assuming what that is, to help those who are affected by another person's sexual behavior. Thank you for your podcast as a tool to break down some of the stigma of sex addiction. May God bless you with continued energy to spread the message of hope and healing. Exclamation point. Gratefully yours, Malka. And by the way, the the uh, the episode that she's referring to is with John M. It's one of the past three or four, and it's called Playboy Mansion comma, AA, comma, sex addiction, and a double wide. So um, well, thank you so much for writing in, Malka. I got to admit, I had never heard of 
S-Anon, and uh, hopefully some of our uh, listeners will be able to benefit from that and look that up. Uh, Catherine writes in, Catherine contacted us on Instagram, and she said, just discovered this podcast yesterday. Each episode I listen to is more inspiring than the last. I've listened to 12 episodes so far. Glad I work alone and in an environment that is almost never interrupted. Great today as I was unable to make my morning meeting. I'm just a bit over a year uh, in the program and have gained a wealth of knowledge through these shared stories. Thanks, John M. Exclamation point. This valuable service for newbies like me. My sponsor is also starting to listen. I'm a fan favorite and will spread this throughout our fellowship. Namaste hand and smiley face. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for writing in. Uh, absolutely love to hear from you and folks like you. And I'm so glad you're getting something out of the uh, podcast. Jessica writes in, she says, hi, I was born in Chile, but have lived in England for 43 years now. I love the podcast as it describes the sobriety I am currently experiencing, joyful and serene. I am also an avid big book recovery alcoholic. Why fix it if it ain't broke? My home group meets at Linwood House every Sunday. Keep up the good work. Jessica. Well, thank you for writing in. And I don't know where the Linwood house is in England, but if you're in England and you're popping by the Linwood house, please look up Jessica and give her our best. Tell her we said hello in person. All right. Patty writes in and Patty's, oh, I, this one kind of starts from the beginning. I, I, I don't want to go through the entire thing, but she, she emailed me and then the name of the uh, podcast, excuse me, the name of the uh, the title of the email was giggling. And she said that she was going, she was only 40 hours sober and going through a pretty bad run. And she asked me if I could quit giggling and learn how to mute my mic because it was distracting uh, her from the guest. And I have heard that before. And I've also heard people say they like the laugh. I, you know, I don't know exactly what to do about that. Uh, but anyway, so I reached back out to Patty and I said, basically, I'm glad you're listening. Hey, listen, you're 40 hours and sober. Do you have people to talk to? Do you have a support system? That's my main concern right now is just you, uh, um, getting sober. And she said, then, then Patty wrote back the last time and she said, Patty, or she said, thanks for getting back to me. I found your podcast by accident, sort of, by searching for Alcoholics Anonymous. I really enjoy what you've put together. I'm sorry for complaining, but in my very early hours slash days of recovery, your laughter sounded like drunken laughter to me, and it was so hard to focus on your guest and not drinking. Sounds a teeny bit crazy, I know. The guest I'm referring to was very funny. Maybe his name was Don. 
uh, you know, it could have been Doug, uh, but I don't remember. I'm sorry. Again, thanks for your podcast. Keep them coming with an exclamation point. I live in the Santa Barbara, California area. This is not my first rodeo. Ha ha. I've been bouncing in and out of sobriety for almost eight years now. I was a light slash normal drinker till I hit my 40s. I'm one of those women who went down hard and fast. Thank you for listening to me. I'll continue to listen to you, <laughs> Patty. So, Patty, God bless you. Like I said, you may, my main concern is just uh, your sobriety uh, and getting you past that 40 hours and getting you into some uh, uh, just a day at a time, some sort of long-term sobriety. God bless you. Thank you for writing in. Uh, Liz wrote in on uh, Instagram regarding the John M. episode with the Playboy Mansion. She said, uh, awesome episode episode Carla writes in and she said hey John I'm getting to re- I'm getting ready to listen to Jimmy D part two and I heard the shout out I, I shouted out to her on the last episode she said thanks and just so you're not wondering I made it to my 60 days sober milestone yesterday thanks for all you do exclamation point namaste hands and so Carla was five weeks sober when she originally wrote in and she made it to 60 days and I'm hoping to hear back from her soon and that it's uh, over 60 days and I'm sure it will be God bless you Carla um all right on on Instagram I posted a question that said give me your thoughts on recovery AJ said it was a rough it was a rough year. Uh, but I'm grateful. This was a transformative year. I feel reborn and ready to start 2019. Anastasia wrote in twice on Facebook, and she said that she was a great interview with John M., the Playboy Mansion again. I'm always looking for new podcasts, and I'm excited about this one. Well, we're excited you found us, Anastasia. Anastasia. And then she also said about Megan, I love this one. Megan P. is pretty kick ass. And I would agree that Megan P., uh, one of uh, the, the episode two back, was kick ass. I agree totally. So now just a, a couple of program notes. I want to put a shout out in here to another podcast. Uh, and the podcast is called You Wanna Do What? And the lady's name who operates this is Monica, uh, and it's you wanna w a n n a do what? And and I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes, and you can find it there. But her podcast is about um, things that will nudge you to do new things in either lifestyle or hobby, fitness, career. Uh, it's not sobriety related, but in other ways, it is. Uh, it is. It's basically. It's whatever's on your bucket list and you want to nudge forward and do those things. Uh, Monica is there to help you along in that way. And the reason that I am plugging, if you will, Monica is because she has been so, so helpful to me in asking, asking several questions that I had about Instagram and other social media platforms. And she has just been, she has done all of this without expecting anything in return. She has no idea that I'm recording this right now. And then I'm going to be announcing her uh, podcast. But you know, if you want to give another podcast a try, I would definitely try out hers. I've listened to several of the episodes, and they were absolutely outstanding couple of program notes here also. Um, if you text the word sober 
S-O-B-E-R, to 31996. Um, it will respond and tell you how to subscribe to the program here on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And I've asked you this before, but if you please would, uh, follow me on Instagram at SoberSpeak. Uh, all one word, sober speak, and Twitter is sober underscore speak. 